This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Tom Hartman, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and The Young Turks. The United States is the only country in the world, in the rich world, the only developed country that has no mechanism for regulating the price of drugs. I mean, in countries like Australia and Canada, where you have Medicare for all, there's a pharmaceutical benefits body, which is just a panel of experts that say, that analyze the benefits and the downside of, of drugs, and uh, they, they they make recommendations, and they say that this is what Medicare is going to pay, and this is what it's not going to pay, and we don't think that the drug is worth more than that, and with a finite amount of money to spend, we're not going to spend it. And you know what? Drug companies cop it. They don't, they don't go bankrupt. They don't go broke. They still sell the drugs for reasonable prices. They're still able I mean, to innovate. They're still able to innovate. They might just have a smaller yep. uh, bonuses and a smaller ad budget, which is where all yeah, this money goes innova- to. The whole innovation argument is almost always BS. So, right. for example, here's one example. Gilead Sciences. They developed two hep C drugs, Savaldi and Harvoni, less than two years ago. They have already recouped all of the R&D expenses for the development of those two drugs. Do you think they're bringing the prices down to cheap levels? Of course not. They're going to keep on charging as high a price as they possibly can for these drugs, and they will in perpetuity, and they'll, and they'll justify it by saying... Well, I mean, the American consumer has to pay these high prices so that we can afford the innovation and the research and development on other drugs. Well, that's exactly the same bullshit that, that uh, this guy was saying when he raised the price of that drug by 5,000%. He said that we want to find a better drug. Every doctor I've spoken to says there's no need to find a better drug because the drug that he just jacked the price up on exactly. is already done a perfectly good job. Exactly. It's like, like, well, we'll privatize your water supply and jack it up to find something better at hydrating you. I mean, it's, there has it's to be, utterly there has ludicrous. There action on this. There has to be yes. some kind of... I mean, the, you know, the biggest... The worst thing that ever happened in the healthcare debate was all the rhetoric about death panels. We need death panels. We need panels that are able to say, this is worth spending money on, and that is not worth spending money on. If, if, if you could extend grandma's life by, by one day on, in, in a coma, in a hospital bed where she's not even aware of it, at a cost of a trillion dollars, would that be worth it? Would that seriously be worth it, a trillion dollars for one more day in a coma? Clearly not. So we have to start making decisions about what we want to spend money on and what we don't want to spend money on. And part of that has to do with what we're willing to, what kind of price we're willing to pay for which particular types of drugs. Yeah, but Otherwise, and, healthcare yeah. is just going to absorb the entire U.S. economy. Well, that's exactly right, but also not only that. I mean, when we, if we actually did a process like that, the primary sort of where the fat would be cut would not be on life extension and health because, first of all, we also already know another major part of this conversation is the complete lack of emphasis placed on prevention and healthy lifestyles and things that actually sure. could fundamentally lead to uh, you know increasing lifespan, lowering medical costs. But the other sort of but but when we actually did an actual process where we attacked these treatments and it was done properly and just about actual efficiencies, it would come down on pharma, it would come down on the insurance industry. I mean, when we're talking about things like HMOs and insurance, these are completely unnecessary and parasitic industries to begin with. But I think the takeaway 
from this segment here, though, is that in some ways Martin Treckley is almost like the Donald Trump of the pharma industry, and that by being so right. obscene, he's revealing the true nature of this business and giving us a roadmap for all the radical reforms we need. So I guess thanks, Martin. I mean, I still think yeah. he should probably be in jail, but thank you. Yeah, and I would I would just add also, it's a common trope on the left to blame HMOs and insurance companies. Insurance companies' margins are actually surprisingly slim. The real the real cost of American healthcare comes from pharmaceutical devices, yes, from pharmaceutical right. companies, drug companies, medical device manufacturers, hospitals, and actually doctors. That's which right. is you know it, they're harder to beat up on, but that's actually the people who are. Well, I think that that's true in terms of the prices, but I think where the beef with HMOs and insurance companies are first of all that's who you're primarily dealing with, who's denying you care, as an example, uh, and then yeah. secondly, we know that. You know, you mentioned Medicare for all systems before. There isn't going to be a system in the world that doesn't exist, obviously, without doctors, medical devices, or drug companies. The necessity of having these mediating agents is highly suspect. So I think it's not the profit margins. It's the immediate role they play in screwing people over. And then, well, why do we even need you to begin with that triggers people so much? Just before the most recent Democratic debate, which many people didn't even hear about and weren't home to see since it was right in the middle of a holiday long weekend for Martin Luther King Day, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders unveiled his plan for universal health care, sort of Medicare, Medicare rather, expansion for all the obvious questions. How would it work? And what would it cost? According to Sanders' plan, individuals would pay a 2.2% premium. And that term premium is the source of much controversy. Employers would pay a 6.2% payroll tax to fund the health care plan. And then there would be some additional taxes on those earning, for example, between a quarter and half a million dollars a year. Uh, the top marginal tax rate for them would go to 37%, and those making over $10 million per year would pay a 52% marginal tax rate. Now, what does former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich think about this plan? Well, let's take a look. He says, Bernie's plan isn't nearly as radical as it will be portrayed. It builds on the strengths of Medicare. Like Medicare, it's universal, separating health insurance from employment and enabling people to choose a health care provider without worrying about whether that provider is in-network. All they'd need to do is go to the doctor, show their insurance card. No more co-pays, no more deductibles, and no more fighting with insurance companies when they fail to pay for charges. Through a single national insurance system, we'll no longer be paying for the marketing and advertising of for-profit health insurers, nor their giant executive salaries or their complex billing systems. Government will negotiate fair prices with drug companies, 
hospitals, and medical suppliers. I've looked at the savings and the costs in Bernie's plan, and it will work. The United States currently spends $3 trillion a year on health care, nearly $10,000 per person. Bernie's plan will save American families and businesses over $6 trillion over the next decade. The typical middle-class family will save over $5,000 a year. The typical business will save over $10,000 a year. The costs will be less than the savings. So this should not be controversial, okay? And where it got controversial, Lewis, was... Is Bernie Sanders raising taxes? And the complex thing is, yes, he is raising taxes in some specific ways. However, for the average family, if you consider a tax increase and the savings, it is a net savings. That's what we should really be focusing on. The are you raising taxes or aren't you raising taxes has become this sort of talking point a buzzword thing, but if the overall cost goes down, that's what we should really be concerned about, and it does appear to with this plan. This one really concerns me deeply. Uh, those of you who watch this program or listen to this program regularly know that uh, although there have been a few occasions where um, I have danced up to the edge and probably a few where I've stepped over it to some extent of uh, criticizing Secretary Clinton, I keep repeating that I think that she's a good and decent person and and would make a good president. I and I I continue to believe that. But I'm astonished astonished by what happened yesterday where not only did Hillary come out and attack Bernie using a lie but she sent her daughter out to do it. And I, you know, I've been rationalizing this to myself by saying this has to be Bill Clinton doing this. He's got to be the one pulling the strings on this. I mean, who made this decision? You're going to attack Bernie Sanders from the right on health care and from the left at the same time? Now, what Bernie Sanders has proposed is that we have a national single-payer health care system that every state administer their piece of it because individual, you know, things tend to work better when there's some local control, but that there be federal standards. So if some Republican governor, you know, if Nikki Haley decided that she didn't, she didn't want to have this national health care program, you know, the way that these governors right now are refusing to expand Medicaid, she would have no choice. You know, the program that she would have to run would either meet the national criteria or the feds would take it over. Very simple. And it would save the average American family $5,000 a year. Now, instead of paying that money, the remaining $5,000 a year, to a health insurance company like people are doing now, whether they're doing it directly or via their employer, uh, they would do it with their taxes, and which means that 
poorer people would pay less and richer people would pay more. Which seems fine to me. So anyhow, here is here is uh, Hillary attacking Bernie on health care yesterday. And I again, I I wonder if this if Bill Clinton is orchestrating this, he's thinking 1992. In 1992, you could say things in Iowa that people didn't hear all over the world. You can't do that anymore. I mean, it might be that she thought that this would just be contained to Iowa. I, I, I don't know. Anyhow, here's Hillary. He wants to roll Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Affordable Care Act Program, and private health insurance into a national system and then turn it over to the states to administer. Now, if, if that's the kind of revolution he's talking about, I am worried, folks. Yeah. So Hillary Clinton attacking Bernie Sanders on, on single-payer health care. I think that most Democrats are sophisticated enough to know that single-payer health care means that you don't need all those programs. Right now we've got five different a patchwork quilt of five different programs that Hillary Clinton just listed providing health care to us and a few others. And they're doing a crappy job. Now, here's here is Chelsea attacking Bernie on health care. And this is where it gets really disingenuous. This is shocking. Senator Sanders wants to dismantle Obamacare, dismantle the CHIP program, dismantle Medicare, um, dismantle private insurance. Now, the Republicans in Congress have voted against the Affordable Care Act 55 times, right? Not because they want to replace it with something, because they want to get rid of it. So I worry that if we give Republicans Democratic permission to do that, we'll go back to an era before we had the Affordable Care Act that will strip millions and millions and millions of people of their health insurance. This just produced an amazing blowback i mean just an absolutely amazing blowback of uh, you know fighting dirty was the the headline over at uh, uh commondreams.org ryan cooper uh, tweeted unless chelsea clinton is strat- catastrophically misinformed is a bunch of straight up lies jed Zel- uh, Jelani, very good reporter uh, bernie sanders healthcare plan is literally called medicare for all and hillary slash chelsea lie and say it dismantles medicare shameless and, you know, on the piece goes. But I thought the, the most amazing thing was on television, uh, John Halpern and Mark, uh, is it David Heilman? Mark, Hal- Mark Halpern and John Heilman. Thank you. Uh, they got this program, All Due Respect, which is both on Bloomberg and MSNBC. And uh, clip 16, this is what they had to say about this, actually using the lie word to describe Chelsea. This is astounding. Is she, is she getting, in your view, smartly tough with Sanders finally, or is she panicking? I've covered the Clintons since 1991. It takes a lot to surprise me. I am stunned watching Chelsea Clinton go on the attack. Stunned. Yeah. Never seen anything like it. And the attack, which her mother's making as well, they're trying to attack Bernie Sanders from the left on health care when he supports single payer. I mean, I'm stunned by I'm stunned by the whole thing. Yes. I will say, you and I spent a couple days in Iowa. We saw Bernie Sanders. We saw the event last night. There's no doubt that Bernie Sanders has built something real. There's no doubt that she has too. But the stakes for her now are immense. I think. 
that she's building up Iowa and New Hampshire. I guess they feel they have no choice. She must do it. So I think attacking him yeah. and going after him is smart. But the way they're doing it, I don't think it's smart. I have got to say, I mean, look, we're in the same boat. We, Chelsea Clinton was about 12 years old when we started covering her when she was in the Clinton White House. She's now a grown woman, very impressive in many ways. But this really, genuinely, never have I seen it before. She campaigned a little in 2008, said only nice things about her mother, never attacked Barack Obama, never attacked John Edwards, anybody else. Kind of incredible. Um, it's it, historic. It's historic. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Look, this attack is not just is it strange politically because the Democratic base is with Bernie Sanders on single payer or Medicare for all, but it's just so disingenuous. They're arguing that what he wants to do is strip away health care from people uh, as if to say, well, he wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something else and he's going to block grant it to the states. It's just a lie because the only way in which he would ever go to Medicare for all is as a replacement for right. the Affordable Care Act, the which would be even broader universal coverage instead universal of mere universal coverage. There you go. It's just a lie. This is on national television. I, I think Hillary is really hurting herself. And whoever is advising her to do this, stop. Dr. Sid Wolf has been on this show a number of times. He and Ralph Nader founded the Health Research Group at Public Citizen in 1971, which to date has been responsible for getting 25 dangerous drugs off the market. Dr. Sid Wolf has been a tireless watchdog, policing the medical device industry, dangerous toys, appliances, and other consumer products. Recently, he authored a report that has come out of Public Citizen entitled Mirror, Mirror on the Wall about how the Medicare Part D program pays needlessly high prices for name brand drugs. And he's back with an update on that. Welcome back, Dr. Sidney Wolf. Nice to be here once again. Good to have you on the show again, Sid. You're going to talk about today something that's going to affect our listeners or many of our listeners or their friends and relatives and co-workers in terms of high-priced drugs under Medicare Part D. This is an area which I would call U.S. exceptionalism. U.S. consumers pay the highest drug prices in the world by drug companies, many of whom were born and prospered in the U.S., are being given huge free research and development by the National Institutes of Health, tax credits for their own research and development by the U.S. Treasury, given free play to advertise a lot of their drugs on TV, with minimal controls for accuracy and, of course, freedom to set their own prices. So today we're going to get a very, very powerful and accurate description of why under Medicare Part D, you're paying needlessly high brand name drug prices compared with other Western countries and even with U.S. programs at the Veterans Administration and other agencies. So, Sid, in this report, mirror, mirror on the wall which I think is on your website for anybody who wants to go into more detail. Tell us uh, your highlights of this report, and what do you recommend for action? 
Well, the first thing, Ralph, is that when the report came out, we had some data that had not yet been made public. I think it's at least been made minimally public in Canada that looks at the 32 countries in the world that are called OECD. It's, it's the developed countries. It's all the Western European countries. It's Canada and the United States. And it looks at a market basket of drugs, and a couple hundred drugs. What do they cost? in every one of these countries. These are all brand name drugs. It's important to distinguish that because whereas 70, 88, more than 80% of the drugs in this country are filled by generic drugs, the brand name drugs, because there's no competition and because they have way too long a patent life, are much more expensive. So this comparison showed that with the exception of three or four countries, the United States was more than twice as expensive in buying these brand name drugs as the other countries. And that was bad enough. And the reason is that virtually all these other countries, with one or two exceptions, the government pays for the drugs for everybody and negotiates the prices and gets good price reductions. But it didn't stop there. We then said, okay, that's bad enough. But we have an idea that even within the United States, there are programs like Medicaid, programs, as you mentioned, like the Veterans Administration, that also have some ability and success in getting price reductions. And we said, what's the matter with Medicare Part D? Just to put it in perspective, Ralph, Medicare Part D just the drugs under Medicare Part D are 7% of all the drugs purchased in the world, not just the United States. It's by far the biggest public program in the United States, but in a sense, it's a mockery to say it's a public program because when the legislation passed back around 10 years ago that set up Medicare Part D, which is the drug reimbursement program under Medicare, the industry got a very important clause stuck in the legislation, and it's called, not euphemistically, but accurately, it's called a non-interference clause. And what this means is that the government is not allowed to negotiate reduced prices for anyone in Medicare Part D. In fact, the program is completely privatized in the sense that if you're a Medicare Part D recipient and you want to buy drug insurance for drug coverage, you can't buy it from the government. You buy it from one of more than 20 private Medicare Part D insurers. And these sure insurers just don't have very much incentive to negotiate for prices with the industry, such as the incentives of the Veteran Administration or Medicaid. And the bottom line, so to speak, I don't like using the phrase bottom line, but at least it describes what the difference is that each year, if Medicare Part D had the kind of price reductions that the VA or Medicaid already have now, we would save between 15 and $16 billion a year on drug costs. And what this means is that a number of people who get Medicare Part D, who because of the high prices can't afford to get their prescriptions filled, might be able to afford because they are paying for these programs to get their prescriptions filled. One study that we cite in our report is that about 16% of diabetic patients in Medicare Part D who are covered by Medicare Part D can't afford to get their prescriptions filled. So not only is it an exorbitant 
amount of money compared even with other programs in the United States and just and way more money than any other and than than the other countries than any of the other countries in the world but it isn't even doing the job that the VA Medicaid and although we don't have the data we are told that the D defense department discounts are somewhere in the order of the veterans administration so there are three programs in this country that are saving the people who use their programs to get their prescription drugs that are doing a much better job and the reason is they don't have a non-interference clause the pharmaceutical industry is extraordinarily powerful in getting what they want for their stockholders and for their CEOs it's the most profitable large industry in the country has been so for 30 40 years and they have as they correctly say a duty to their fiduciary duty, their stockholders and the executives there who are big stockholders to make as much money as possible. And therefore, the industry thought it was very successful and to this day, the trade association, Pharma, for the drug industry boasts on what a great program Medicare Part D is. Well, it is a great program if you own stock in one of these companies or if you're an executive owning stock, but it's a disaster for the people, the millions of people in this country who depend on Medicare Part D for drugs because they are paying much more than they would pay if they were veterans, if they were on Medicaid, if they were in the Defense Department and so forth. So the program is terrible and what needs to be done is repeal this non-interference clause. Not only does it prevent the government from getting the prices down, it prevents the government from doing things that are done routinely in the Veterans Administration and I suspect in the Defense Department, which is saying, we are only going to reimburse for a drug that is generically available if there is one that is exactly the same except more expensive and that's a brand name drug. They also, for certain drugs that don't seem to have any benefit above existing drugs that are often safer and less expensive, they will say we're not going to reimburse for that. So it's not only non-interference in terms of not being able to get a price reduction for the people that use this program, this huge program, the biggest public, and it's, as I said, it's, a, it's almost a tragic joke to call it a public program because it's been so privatized and taken out of the control of the government. So repealing that clause in the law, there is slowly growing interest by people in the Congress to do that. There's at least been a bill introduced to allow an experiment. It wouldn't repeal it, but it would say, the government, if it ever passed, would set up a program that some people, instead of buying from one of these 20 private Medicare Part D insurers, would be able to get it from the government. The power of the industry is likely to stop this from ever passing. So that's, in a nutshell, what is going on, why we did this report. It was intended primarily to go to at least the most progressive person in the House, and the most progressive person in the Senate, and that would be uh, Rosa DeLauro 
in the House, representative from Connecticut, and Bernie Sanders in the Senate. We sent it to them. They were very interested in it and actually was invited to give a talk to a number of staff people on the House side, including former Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, Lloyd Doggett, who you know, who was very interested in this. So I think it, it takes a while to get the idea that something that passed as easily as it did back 10 years ago is completely wrong. I mean, it takes the, this amount of time to say, wait a minute, we are wasting, we call it waste, $15 billion a year on this, but looked at from the other perspective, the drug industry is making $15 billion more. These are the, the differences in what the drug industry charges. It doesn't include the pharmacy costs and everything like that. So the, drug, the brand name drug industry is making 15 to $16 billion more. It's 15 if you compare it with Medicaid and 16 if you compare it with the VA by having this legislation. The biggest lobby, as you know, Ralph, in Washington used to be the tobacco industry. It has easily been replaced by the pharmaceutical industry as the biggest lobby now, and they're all over the place. I mean, in addition to their success on this, they were able to arrange with President Obama to be willing, reluctantly, to support what we keep calling the Unaffordable Care Act in return for Obama's promise not to do anything to control drug prices. Now that we're talking beyond just Medicare Part D because Medicare Part D is already passed by that time. So it is a very powerful being on the, in Washington. Someone who they are all delighted with will soon, unless something unusual happens, become the FDA commissioner. Someone who is not in the least bit corrupt, but has spent most of his career doing studies for big drug companies. So they will have their person leading the FDA. They have their non-interference clause making a fortune for them off of Medicare Part D. And in many other ways, they have a very destructive, I mean, again, it's, it is constructive if you're a stockholder of a drug company, but the pharmaceutical industry is supposed to be providing drugs at reasonable costs that are as good or better than existing drugs. And that's not mainly what goes on here. So Nancy Pelosi was proper to get mad at this, but it's now 10 years. This report, amongst other things, has pointed out what a disaster the legislation is. Why isn't Nancy Pelosi and other people doing whatever they can to repeal this clause and make it possible for Medicare Part D recipients to get at least a good deal as people in Medicaid, people in the Veterans Administration, and people in Defense Department. So it's easy to say it was terrible that it happened. Let's get some action here to do something about it. I don't think it's much of a stretch to generalize that the listeners of this show have an interest in news, politics, world events, that sort of thing. And, you know, I try to do a deeper dive on this show, digging clips from the recent and distant past, bringing together a mix of opinions on a given topic. But if you want analysis of something that just happened, then I've got a recommendation for you. Newsy puts together two-minute explainer videos to give you a well-rounded understanding of the stories that matter to you. For instance, maybe you heard that Bernie Sanders was talking sort of emphatically about how much he does not like Henry Kissinger, doesn't want to be his friend. He said this in a recent debate. 
Well, in a newsy video titled Clinton's Relationship with Kissinger Could Underline Her Hawkishness, they dive into Kissinger's friendship with Hillary Clinton and his history as Secretary of State under Nixon and Johnson and explain what all the fuss is about, basically. And if, like me, you weren't around during the Vietnam War, this is a good refresher. And sometimes they take a broader view, too. They did a video recently about the revolving door in Congress titled Half of Retiring Senators Are Registering as Lobbyists. So for stories like these and more, including a bunch of other topics such as tech, entertainment, and health, check out Newsy.com slash easy. That's Newsy.com slash easy. On the line with us, I'm very pleased to have Zed Jelani, investigative journalist with The Intercept, the website The Intercept. You can tweet him at Zed Jelani, Z-A-I-D-J-A-L-I-A-N-I. Hey, Zed. Yeah, it's great to be here, Tom. Great to have you with us. Welcome back to, back to the program. I was astonished by this piece that you published in The Intercept after Hillary Clinton has started attacking Bernie Sanders on, on uh, single payer. Uh, the headline... Hillary Clinton's single-payer pivot greased by millions in industry speech fees. What What's going on here? Well, basically, you know, you had a, uh, you know, a candidate who, when she was first lady, was actually strongly supportive of the idea of single-payer. She didn't actually put it in her plan at the time, and she didn't advocate for it necessarily as being done at that moment, but she did tell other people that it would work well. Uh, she had told a, a conference that if they didn't do health reform, we would have single payer by 2000, like it would be inevitable. And basically, you know, sh- her argument had always been that, hey, it's a good system. It's just we can't do it politically right now. Mm-hmm. But now that her argument has shifted, her argument is to say, hey, Bernie Sanders is going to come in. He is going to do this and it's going to be terrible. You know, it's, it's a terrible system that will dismantle all your other health care. It'll be too costly. It'll raise taxes. Sounds like the Republican hit on Obamacare. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a complete shift from where she was as first lady when she was when she was seen as as heading up the more progressive wing of, of the White House and in, in healthcare arguments. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know an important bit of context to this is that there's been a lot of industry capture with with uh, Secretary Clinton um, since she's left office. She gave 13 speeches to various healthcare firms, ranging from doctors' associations that oppose uh, single payer healthcare uh, to drug companies, and. Altogether, these 13 speeches earned her about $2.8 million since 2013. Now, to put that in perspective, most Americans don't earn that much money in their entire lifetimes. Like, lifetime earnings of, uh, like, an average bachelor's degree holder is like $2.4 million. So really, she earned more than someone earns in their entire lifetime in speeches just to healthcare firms, uh, over the past two years. And again, these, again, this was money directly into her bank account. It wasn't for the foundation. And it wasn't relative to the campaign. There weren't campaign funds. This was personal speaking fees. And, it may, and you know, I'm not necessarily arguing that this was quid pro, straight up quid pro quo. Okay, we'll pay you and you just don't talk about this. But the fact of the matter is that if you do want to rake in speech fees from people like these, you can't be talking about reforms like single payer healthcare because that's not what they want. They're not going to be paying you if you're talking about things like that, right? right. So I think that that's a really important part of the story. And this is, Part of how industry capture happens with, with politicians, and and um, her the money that she's gotten from the healthcare industry is second only to the money she's gotten from the banking industry. Do I understand that correctly? And uh, and we're talking personal income, making her yeah. a multimillionaire. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's right, you know, the, the, for Wall Street, I believe it was a little bit more, it was like 2.9 something. So it was right, it's really right behind Wall Street, which is really, I think, shocking to a lot of people because I think she has had an association with Wall Street for quite a long time. And, and all of this is really in the, all of this is in the year and a half before she, she declared her candidacy for president? Well, the majority of it was in 2013, both for Wall Street and I believe also for the healthcare firms, although I think there's quite a bit in 2014 for the healthcare firms as well. But in 2015, I think she gave like speeches up until maybe March of that year. So the, really, it was the vast majority of it was the year and a half, 2013 primarily, and also 2014. Wow. Wow. Um, what's... Now, I understand Howard Dean, it turns out, has also taken a job as a lobbyist for the healthcare industry or taken a, lob, a job with a, with a large firm that lobbies the healthcare, for the healthcare industry. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, my, my colleague Lee Fong has a great piece up. I, I encourage your listeners to go on theintercept.com and read it. But basically, Howard Dean, who had made a name for himself in advocating for healthcare reform, uh, he wasn't a straight-up advocate for single-payer. He, he typically advocated for a public plan uh, that you could voluntarily join if you wanted to. But he did in the past say that single-payer was an efficient system and an effective system. And now he's on, you know, he's on television saying that actually, hey, the Clintons aren't off base. You know, there are a lot of problems with this system. And unfortunately, uh, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that Howard Dean's day job today is not to be an activist, not to be a, you know, he's no longer DNC chair. He does, he doesn't do that much electoral work. His day job, actually, is that he's a senior advisor at a law firm that does all sorts of lobbying on many issues, including healthcare and various uh, healthcare companies, including drug companies, which, of course, are actually, you know, a lot of people think about health insurance companies as the most powerful lobby, but probably, actually, the most powerful healthcare lobby is the drug companies. You know, they have the highest profits and they pour the most money in and they almost never lose. Yeah. And, and plus, they not only own politicians. Because of the uh, very high level of spending that they do on national television, I would argue that they own the networks as well. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, many people don't know this, but there's only two countries in the world where you are allowed to actually like advertise, for example, um, prescription medicines. You know, one is New Zealand, and the other one is the United States. I mean, it's interesting because you know, obviously, doctors are the ones who write the prescriptions. You're not allowed to, you know, write a prescription for yourself, and yet we still, as a country, allow. Uh, patients to be inundated with advertising, you know, suggesting certain pharmaceutical drugs, even when really a television commercial is not qualified to be telling you what medicine you should be taking, right? You know, that's the doctor's job. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right about the, the TV advertising uh, portion. Ask your doctor about that drug. Ask your doctor if you like Ask your doctor. Fall apart. She was stressed, depressed, and messed up. Hit the wall. Then she took a little pill, and she thought it was a miracle. Nirvana at the mall. She's got it all. She has a doctor about that drug. We've discussed earlier the Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders' proposal for a single-payer health care system should be completely uncontroversial, should be obvious, given what most of our friends in developed countries are doing. This is something sort of like a, uh, a Medicare-for-all program. Shouldn't really have controversy. But here in the United States, health care and people's well-being is a for-profit industry. And as such, it is an industry with lobbyists. And sometimes the lobbyists are exactly who you would expect 
and sometimes they aren't. Howard Dean, our old buddy Howard Dean, is the latest in a string of Hillary Clinton supporters to say uh, Bernie Sanders is wrong. Bernie Sanders is wrong to support a single-payer health care plan. This may come as a surprise to you since Howard Dean has been a longtime supporter of single-payer health care, but apparently no longer. You'll remember in 2009, for example, Howard Dean went on Democracy Now! He said, we absolutely need single-payer. It is, quote, by far the most economically efficient system. So I was very confused and perplexed, Lewis, to see Howard Dean on MSNBC a couple of days ago saying, actually, Bernie Sanders' single-payer health care proposal could result in chaos. Here's Howard Dean explaining. If I could interject as referee for a moment, I mean, it strikes me that the, the, the sort of legitimate good faith attack is to say, look, it was really hard to pass the ACA. Opening up a fight on health care politically right. could backfire, which is the most charitable version of what Chelsea Clinton was saying, as opposed to the idea that, like, Bernie Sanders is going to try to take away your health care, which seems implausible. I don't think, well, I mean, yes, I, 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 Bernie Sanders certainly had no intention of taking right. away his health care. The question is, would his um, plan result in the kind of chaos of trying to implement it that, in fact, would undo people's health care? That somebody, people should be concerned about. Look, we're never going to have a sensible debate about this between now and the convention. Right. It isn't going to happen. There's too much politics in it. Right. But in fact, is this is the classic race of the visionary and the pragmatist, and I've chosen the pragmatist. Right. Yeah. Howard so Dean, listen, thank you very much. The, the, thank you. the pragmatist versus visionary debate is a legitimate debate, and we can have it, and we've been having it. But that has also become cover for just assuming everything Bernie Sanders wants to do isn't possible, and we shouldn't even think or talk about doing it because it's just not that likely to happen. If someone had said before George W. Bush's first term that George W. Bush was going to single-handedly get us into two long wars based on false intelligence, destroy the economy, a lot of people would have said, that's not possible. It's just not pragmatic to worry about that. Let's not really worry about that. The real issue here in this clip for me is Howard Dean. Howard Dean just is presented as MSNBC political analyst. This doesn't discuss that he is now a senior advisor uh, to the law firm uh, Dentons. The, the Dentons uh, have a public policy and regulation practice, which is lobbying. That's what we're talking about here. They advise big pharmaceutical companies, including the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. They advise Pfizer. They advise Merck. All of a sudden, Howard Dean, who liked single-payer health care, is working for one of the big healthcare lobbyists, and for no reason that's connected to that at all, Lewis, he just is worried that single-payer healthcare might lead to chaos. What a surprise. I'm sure he just figured it out on his own. Yeah, no conflict of interest. You know, he does have a point to some extent. Uh, the implementation of this uh, over the ACA may get a little messy. What would also be messy is getting rid of the Affordable Care Act now, right? Getting rid of the yeah. Affordable Care Act now would be a crazy mess. Yes. Republicans still want to do that. That's true. That would be worse. Um, but again, this is, uh, I know he's just lobbying here. He, there's a clear conflict of interest. Let's put that aside. Absurd. Um, no vision. Uh, you, know, the, the, you know, you need to look at the, at the long term. And for-profit health care uh, is just not a good thing. Dave, I don't think my health should be for-profit.
difference between a drug's price and its true price. The difference between what you pay and what it actually costs to produce that drug. Now that true price is made up of this. The active ingredient and other chemicals, their formulation into a pill, packaging, shipping, and a profit margin. So those are the things that actually go into producing the pill, including, by the way, a profit margin for the pharmaceutical company that produced it. That sort of uh, uh, profit margin then allows them to pay the employees, pay for future research and development of other drugs. Now, there's often, though, a very big difference between that true cost and the actual cost on the market for some drugs. And in many cases, it's up to 600 times more expensive than it needs to be. Let's talk about some specifics. The analysis that was done recently figures the true cost of a year's supply of Gleevec used to treat certain kinds of leukemia at $159. That's over one year. But the yearly price tag for Gleevec is $106,322 in the U.S., and $31,867 in the UK. Meanwhile, a generic version costs about $8,000 in Brazil. So that generic version in Brazil is already massively overpriced compared to the true price of that drug. And the American version, it's a, it's a war crime, what is going on with what you're being uh, charged there. It's something like 90 times more expensive. Now, that's not the only drug, of course, that this is true of. Uh, the Liverpool Group did the same analysis for four other drugs in the same class. These are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs. They're used to treat lung, breast, liver, pancreas, and thyroid cancer, as well as leukemias. The true yearly cost of these four drugs ranges from $236 for Tarceva to $4,022 for Tycurb, but their U.S. sticker prices range from $78,000 to $135 thousand dollars an absolutely huge disparity now one of the reasons that we're talking about this is because the american public recently became uh outraged over the fact that daraprim was recently raised in price from thirteen dollars a pill to over seven hundred and fifty dollars per pill when a new company bought the rights to sell the drug now they have walked back that new price although we don't know what the eventual price will be but this is not rare this is the case in many drugs and these drugs in many cases are literally the matter of life and death Daraprim, for instance, uh, deals with uh, toxoplasmosis infection, generally needs to be treated in those with HIV. And in the case of the other drugs we've been talking about, those are for dealing with uh, leukemia and other forms of cancer. Now, they will say, the pharma companies, that, yeah, they have to be over the price of these true prices. It's because of research and development. It costs a lot to develop those drugs. And that is certainly true. And that's why they factor in the profit margin in that true price. And certainly, the eventual price that it'll be sold for will be somewhat higher than that. But if you believe that that's the entirety of the difference between a $159 yearly supply of pills and well over $100,000, then you are overpaying if you're buying that, as with so many other things uh, with drug prices. And again, life and death. We're talking about people who can't afford this eventually dying. Now, could we deal with this? Yes. Some European countries already include a variety of different policies that place caps or limits on the prices uh, that can be charged for various drugs, drug price controls. That's not the policy in the U.S., but it is the policy in many comparable countries uh, in the West. Now, right now, President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders all support various policies that would seek to accomplish something like the European examples. And so it is certainly possible to fix this problem. The only question is when the American people will finally make clear that when it comes to rising drug prices, and the rising number of people who die because they can't afford to pay those prices, enough is indeed finally enough.
Zed Jelani's piece over at the Intercept, there is a uh, hyperlink, a hot link to the actual 20-page document that the health insurance industry. Now, keep in mind, the health insurance industry is not in the health care business. The health insurance industry, and there's basically just three or four of these very, very large companies that dominate the industry because of all the mergers and acquisitions in the last decade. The health insurance industry is banksters. They are bankers. That's all they do. They handle money. They take your premiums. They skim 20% off the top for themselves, and then they pay your bills. And they fight with you about which bills they will pay, and they fight with your providers about which bills they will pay because they'd like to put more of that money into that 20% that they skim off the top. In a single-payer health care system like Medicare or Medicaid, we have single-payer in the United States, by the way, right now, and it works just fine. Somebody should let Hillary Clinton know, and, and all the Republicans. In a single-payer health care system, you can still have health insurance companies, but they, they have to offer products that are like you know basically for rich people and, and go beyond basic coverage. Basic coverage, excuse me, is provided to everybody, and, and basic coverage is is... You know, no deductibles, no no copays, and and basically you pay for it out of your out of your uh, payroll taxes. And and what uh, Bernie Sanders is proposing is a little more than a two percent increase in payroll taxes for everybody who works, up to two hundred and twenty five or two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, six percent contribution, or a little more than a six percent contribution from the employers, and then an additional surcharge on anybody earning over a million dollars a year. And a two-tenths of one, two one-hundredths of one percent tax on every stock transaction. And all of this will add up to free health care for everybody in the United States. Or, you know, it's not free. Obviously, we're all paid for it. But it's, it will be, it will save the average family, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, around $1,200 a year. Now, according to the Sanders campaign, it'll save every family, you know, between three and $5,000 a year. Uh, but nobody's disputing that it's going to save every family uh, money. So here is the, uh, the this document that you can see from the health insurance industry in 2007 when Michael Moore's movie Sicko was coming out. Strategic approach. One, move past damaging anecdotes to common ground. Take the issue Sicko raises off the table. Two, define the health insurance industry as part of the solution in italics. Three, reframe the debate. Highlight the threats and weaknesses of government-run systems. Four, position SICO as a threat to the Democrats' larger agenda. And number five, prepare for the worst. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, it, 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 and it goes, you know, it's basically uh, how do you address public cynicism? Tout industry positions, programs, and progress on access, quality, and costs. Create online toolkits so it can be customized for policymakers, employers, company employees, and the media with briefs on how the industry is proactively and effectively addressing each of these key issues, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. It goes on.
I'm joined today by Wendell Potter, who is former VP of Corporate Communications at Cigna, also author of the book Deadly Spin, and most recently, Obamacare, What's in it for me? What everyone needs to know about the Affordable Care Act. Wendell, it's great to have you back, of course, and you recently wrote a very interesting article talking about the United Kingdom's national health care program that they have. It's a topic of much controversy. It's often used by those in the U.S. who are against any kind of government involvement in health care to point to other countries that have uh, government health care programs and to talk about how poor they are, the long wait times, the very uh, high cost, the spending per person, the high tax rates that people in those countries have as a result of these government programs. You looked specifically at the UK, and maybe not surprisingly to some of our audience, a lot of those talking points seem to not be true. Oh, it's exact, you're exactly right, David. And um, I even mentioned in that post that uh, during my career in the insurance industry, I used to spend considerable time trying to mislead people about the National Health Service in the UK and the Canadian health system and other systems that um, were single-payer or that were very heavily regulated uh, by the government, which is, uh, just a, which is every other uh, health care system in the developed world. So let's go through what we do know and, and kind of these objections that become part, part, part of this mantra that is against these types of programs. With regard to what we hear about accessibility of care, long wait times, etc., what's the truth about the U.K. NHS system? Well, the truth is that uh, on almost every measure uh, of outcomes and, uh, and, and patient satisfaction, the U.K. is way ahead of the United States. And what I wrote about in that piece uh, was first-person accounts of people who uh, are either expats from the U.K. and have lived in the U.S. or people who have dual citizenship and have used both, both systems. And without... Without any hesitation, they all said that they would much rather uh, uh, get their care in the U.K. Some people said that even though they were living in the U.S., they would fly back to the U.K. to get care for, for a lot of reasons. One is the cost. It's much less expensive in the U.K. Uh, and second, uh, uh, it's far less complicated. We have one of, I guess, probably the most complicated uh, health care systems on the planet. And when we look at the the outcomes, I think that this is a really interesting element because if we put aside for a second, long waits, in, in many cases, those are, are kind of anecdotal stories that we hear about long waits. So if we put that aside for a second, particularly when it appears not to be true broadly either, when we look at outcomes, we often hear touted that in the U.S., in spite of the fact that we have a, a kind of employer-connected and or private insurance system as the predominant one, that the the outcomes are actually better here. Are there some specific statistics or conditions that you can talk to us about that illustrate why that is not true? Well, you're right. Uh, the 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 arguments against the National Health Service that have been put out by opponents uh, here in the U.S. Uh, are anecdotal. Uh, I mean, they are anecdotes, and and uh, it they they're they're done specifically to obscure the reality of the better outcomes. The Commonwealth Fund every every year does an analysis uh, of the healthcare systems around the globe and uh, in the developed world. And they, they rate them as to, on various measures, on outcomes, on uh, accessibility, on cost, among other things. And um, last year, the U.K. system came out well ahead of every other system and certainly 
well ahead of the UK system. They looked at 11 countries. Uh, the UK was first, and the US was the 11th. Now, hopefully, the US will start to climb up because we passed the Affordable Care Act, and uh, uh, that uh, survey or that work that was done by the Commonwealth Fund was based on the experience in 2013, and then the next year, 2014, last year, is when a lot of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act kicked in. But uh, to answer your question, uh, a lot of the outcomes uh, uh, in the U.K. are much superior to ours. Uh, one of the things that uh, it's really important is access to primary care, which is much more readily available in the U.K., and one of the reasons why they have... Uh, uh, more, uh, uh, they have better infant mortality statistics and longevity st statistics. Let's talk a little bit now. If we concede temporarily, even though, uh, as we know, there's no reason to do this, but if we were to concede that uh, the, um, uh, uh, let me let me frame it a different way. Let's focus just on this issue of taxes, right? So if we can say, okay, we can have a system that works well that is either private insurance or government funded. We can have a system that that is that works well. Uh, that um, is a government system where you can have either a social safety net or straight-up single-payer health care. But the problem is that it's very expensive to taxpayers. If we analyze that data, I looked specifically at Australia as well as at the UK, it does not actually appear that there is a significantly higher tax burden for individuals based on having that national health care program. No, you're exactly right because of the efficiencies that you can get in a, in a system that is uh, operated largely by the government or at least financed by the government in which you can remove a lot of the hidden costs that we have in this system, a lot of the administrative expenses that, uh, uh, that make our health care system the most expensive in the world. We spend, uh, it's been estimated about 30% uh, of what we spend on health care uh, is in many cases wasted or at least uh, uh, characterized as administrative expenses that don't have anything to do with the delivery of care. Uh, so you save that money right off the bat. And one of the things we, that it's difficult for uh, advocates of reform to communicate effectively to Americans is that we pay a lot in a hidden tax for the care that we, uh, that we get, for the insurance that we get. Uh, we tend to think that if we get our, our coverage through the, through the uh, workplace, that that's uh, our employer taking care of that. But actually, it's our money. So if you, what we need to do is consider all that we spend on health care, and in, including what we spend on premiums, and we can see that it's far and, far and away much more than any other country spends. I want to go back to something you wrote about in Deadly Spin, and I often reference this, but over the years since I've read this passage now a few years ago, I forget the, some of the details, and I think it would be very interesting to review. You wrote in the book that the U.S. at one point was actually early in the 20th century going in the direction of single payer. And if I recall correctly, because it was similar to what our enemy Germany seemed to be doing, there was a successful campaign mounted to oppose going in the direction of single-payer merely because it was similar to what our enemy was doing. Am I remembering that more or less correctly? You really are. Uh, in fact, we have been trying to reform our health care system for more than 100 years. It goes back to uh, the administration of Teddy Roosevelt, who was trying to do exactly what you described. Um, but there was uh, uh, a fear-mongering cam uh, campaign that developed uh, even back then, to try to scare people away from uh, from the German healthcare system, Germany was one 
of the first developed countries, I think it was the first in Europe, uh, to, to go down the path of, of, of providing uh, health care more broadly for its citizens. And when we look going forward, you know firsthand about the propaganda campaigns that have been used here in the U.S. from the for-profit insurers to put down the programs like that that originated in Germany, uh, in the U.K., in Australia, etc. What might get the, di- the dialogue to change successfully in terms of having serious conversations around national health care? I mean, we know that when you fairly ask individuals... Do you believe the government has some responsibility to provide at least basic care for everybody regardless of ability to pay? That's actually very popular, but when it gets wrapped in around corporate talking points is, is where it seems to fall apart. It's exactly right. Uh, uh, corporations uh, that offer or sell health insurance are very, very profitable, and they have a lot of money to uh, invest in PR campaigns to mislead people. So we've got to realize, that's why I wrote Deadly Spin, to, to explain to people how that works. We've got to uh, uh, come up with strategies that can overcome that. And I think it's possible. Uh, we just have to know, uh, to start with, what we're up against. We just heard clips featuring the Majority Report, who talked with Josh Zepps about the evils of profit-hungry Big Pharma. The David Pakman Show detailed Bernie Sanders' plan for universal, single-payer health care. The Tom Hartman program was appalled at the underhanded tactics of the Clinton campaign as they outright lied in an attempt to discredit Sanders' health care plan. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour hosted Dr. Sidney Wolf, who talked about the vultures of Big Pharma and how they have rigged the system. Tom Hartman talked with Zaid Jelani about the possible effect of corporate cash on Hillary Clinton's position on single-payer health care. The David Pakman Show highlighted how Howard Dean, once a strong supporter of single-payer, has become a health care lobbyist and completely changed his tune probably coincidentally. The Young Turks exposed the true price of prescription drugs. Tom Hartman gave us an inside look at the playbook the health insurance industry uses to fight single-payer and protect their profits. And finally, David Backman talked with health insurance industry whistleblower Wendell Potter about the healthcare system in the UK. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And today, I don't have any voicemails for you. We'll get back to them in the next show. So I'm just going to keep talking for a little while. And first, of course, I want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the volunteers who have helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I got a comment on an episode recently. It was the education episode I did. And someone wrote on the blog, they said, Jay, Loved the show as always, but it seemed a little unfocused. Should have done a K-12 through municipal education show, and then later a private-slash-public higher education loan-slash-debt affordability episode. That's just my two cents, but then again, I don't have a podcast, so what do I know? Smiley face with tongue hanging out. And so I responded. I said, I appreciate the comments, but if you thought this one was unfocused, Try squinting and tilting your head to the side. I had a very specific angle I wanted to focus on. And this actually goes back 
a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I was talking about how Wade and I were discussing the merits and demerits of capitalism. He had asked about the downsides of income inequality, and that got me thinking that I would do, you know, that would be a great topic for for a full episode. So I made the inequality episode. And then I started thinking about how I'd been addressing the issue, like the broader issue of our economic system on the show. Like I'd been doing an episode like uh, like the one I put out on uh, January 19th it's called To Save or Destroy Capitalism. And it touched on inequality and the, the effects of climate change and how the financial system is rigged and, you know, an explainer on democratic socialism. And that's all fine and good. But, you know, I thought maybe there's an even better way. So I put a plan into action and... Uh, I'm kind of curious to hear if anyone even noticed. And because that's what led me to produce the last seven episodes, including this one you just heard, and including the one on education that the person commented on who thought it was a little unfocused. Yes, normally I would have done an episode as that commenter suggested. You know, I do like one on public schools versus charter schools, or I do an episode, uh, you know, a separate one on higher education affordability. But instead, I wanted to look at as many aspects of a given general topic through the very specific lens of how our economic system and money is impacting that topic. So today, I thought we'd have some fun and go through the entire list starting at the beginning. So going back to episode 986, The Trouble with Extreme Wealth Inequality, here's what we learned. One, that wealth inequality in America is indeed extreme. Two, a combination of climate change impacts and economic inequality drive wars and catastrophic conflicts, especially in places like Syria that we're experiencing now. Three, our for-profit media more often than not stokes fears among workers, pitting them against each other rather than against the rich. Four, an examination of Thomas Piketty's book shows that wealth inequality is running out of control and that the majority of the world's wealth is simply being inherited rather than generated through work, creating an ever-increasing worldwide wealth gap and a new class of international oligarchs. Five, we looked at wealth gap through the lens of child poverty and saw that among wealthy nations, the U.S. and Israel were at the top of the list for worst child poverty rates. Whereas Denmark, a country full of generally happy and prosperous people, they had some of the lowest child poverty rates. And finally, I finished off with my comments about how inequality in society adversely affects life expectancy, obesity, imprisonment rates, teenage pregnancy, mental health, levels of trust in the community, educational performance, and gender and racial equality, just to name a few of the impacts. Next up, next episode, 987, The Double Helix of Racial and Economic Inequality. We learned, one, how the racist economic policies of the past created the segregated ghettos that still exist to this day. Two, the story of how racial and economic rights have always gone hand in hand. Three, the fact that black people lost more of their wealth during the recessions of the past 20 years than their white counterparts, even when you only count black households with college graduates. Four, that the wealth gap between the races is even more profound than the already extreme inequality between the rich and the poor generally. And five, that racism from the very beginning of slavery has always been a tool to keep poor white people from rebelling against rich white people. 
Because, you know, as long as poor white people have been able to feel superior to black people, they're at least less likely to fight to better their own lives. This actually goes a long way towards explaining why some of the poorest places in America are filled with poor white people like in Appalachia. Okay, we're not nearly done. Next up, number 988, when climate science meets faith-based economics. We learned, one, about externalities and how they are so rarely factored into the true cost of everything we do, from the degradation of a forest to the gasoline we burn. All of those actions have effects that nobody pays for. Economists may be upset that no one's paying for it, Business people are certainly happy that they don't have to pay for it because they're the ones profiting from the pollution and the effects are being felt in either the climate impacts or the health impacts of people who just have to pay for those consequences on their own. Two, the effect of free trade deals like NAFTA and the TPP on the climate due to restrictions they put on a country's ability to regulate their own climate mitigation policies as evidenced by TransCanada suing the U.S. for billions of dollars over their expected lost profits when we decided to not approve Keystone XL. Number three, Nevada's for-profit energy company successfully shut down the solar industry through backwards regulation, so much for the market letting people decide which ideas deserve to win and which deserve to lose. Go to bringbacksolar.org to join in on that fight. Number four, we explored the idea of progress traps, ideas that seem like a good idea at first and then turn into economic necessities just to maintain that newfound higher standard of living. And then they ultimately collapse under their own weight because they didn't work within the constraints of natural systems. And number five, we learned that the massive gas leak in California is actually being made worse because the company is trying to maximize their profits at the same time as they attempt to plug the leak. So they're allowing more methane to escape rather than flaring it off, which would still be terrible, but would be far better for the climate effects. Okay, we're on a roll. Let's keep going. Number 989, investments in education should not earn cash profits. Instead of looking at one aspect of our education system or another, we learned, one, a lack of funds due to austerity policies has led schools to begin charging fees for all kinds of things rather than being able to pay for services out of their budgets. Two, we're continuing to shovel money into for-profit charter school systems even when there's already evidence of massive amounts of money being wasted. Three, the expensive and controversial high-stakes testing regime coupled with charter schools is a nightmare example of privatizing and profiteering off of education at the expense of the students. Number four, we learned about the shady dealings of the Pearson Publishing Company that has a near lock on textbook and testing contracts. Number five, we heard from some people being directly affected by the student debt crisis being driven by skyrocketing tuition rates and the ubiquity of loans that are made to seem like a completely normal part of the process, even though no other wealthy country expects their students to go into so much debt for their education. And six, again, we look at Michigan public schools and see how the effects of austerity policies result in absolutely crumbling infrastructure. All right, let's keep rolling. Number 990, Prisoners for Profit. I didn't even get a chance to do a school-to-prison pipeline episode this time around, but hopefully you can read between those lines. So in that episode, we learned, number one, how private prisons profit off of locking people up, and then lobby lawmakers to pass more and more strict laws to ensure that those prisons are always filled, leading us to having the highest rates of incarceration in the world. 
And number two, the economic impacts of throwing people in jail, including the loss of income of the incarcerated people, as well as the extremely high cost of staying connected to them, either by visiting or even just by calling prisons. Okay, we're in the home stretch. Number 991, the food market. We learned, one, how food corporations in search of the most profitable way to get their engineered food-like products to our tables manage to create loopholes that allow them to largely avoid any kind of federal regulation or inspection by the FDA. Number two, how food corporations use scientifically tested recipes using unhealthy amounts of sugar, salt, and fat and have figured out how to keep us addicted to what only they can provide, even if it's not what we should really be eating. Number three, how Coca-Cola is using their massive profits to take advantage of the underfunded schools to offer money for health curricula, quote-unquote, that is actually just propaganda to prepare the next generation to become happily and unquestioningly addicted to Coke products. Number four, the rampant conflicts of interest that exist among so-called food and health experts who are taking money from food companies to say that their products are healthy. Number five, the effects of free trade agreements driven by multinational corporations intent on maximizing their profits that even further lowers food safety standards in a variety of ways. And number six, the details of how mega chicken production companies crush their tenant farmers in a way that looks terrifyingly like a modern day version of Down Abbey where the corporations manage to internalize all of the profitable parts of the business while externalizing all of the stuff that costs money and laying that at the feet of the individual farmers themselves. And then finally, we come to today's episode, and I shouldn't even have to go over again all of the ways that a for-profit healthcare system literally kills people on a regular basis by allowing for-profit health insurance companies to decide what they will and will not pay for regarding the care people need. One of the most obvious and most egregious examples of a conflict of interest that lies at the very heart of their business model. There. I am exhausted just from reading that list. And that's just from the episodes I've made so far. So for anyone who still has a lingering feeling that capitalism is the pinnacle of human achievement and that it has unshackled us from the drudgery of what life was like a 100 or more years ago, can you hear that list all compiled together and still think, no, this economic system is as good as it gets. We can't possibly devise another way of organizing our economic activity that would create better outcomes than what we have now. Because if you can think that, I pity your lack of imagination. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories See